Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. So good evening, my friends. I'm happy to get to talk to you today on our first night after our first full day on retreat together. And when you set out on retreat, it's like going off on a journey. And this is like our our boat we're in. That's now set sail. The first morning, as we've been doing the practice of presence and uh, insight practice, is like we're starting to pull up the anchor like that. And now we're on the full meta voyage, so off on the sea of love, <laughs> where you'll be for a week with your companions here on the ship. So I thought I'd talk to you a little bit tonight about um, what it is that we're doing here, uh, something about my own connection to the practice and why I feel like it's so important. Uh, so why I said in the first night that I feel like there's really nothing more valuable you could be doing with your time as a human being than being here this week. And share also some connections to the practice of uh, vipassana, insight practice, which I know many of you have a lot of experience with as well. So my own uh, practice path was one of Um, being very curious and trying to understand things about um, life and asking a lot of questions, even as a child, as I'm sure some of you did, and then finding uh, lack of satisfactory answers from many of the grown-ups around me. Uh, So then trying to read a lot of books and just get some help anywhere to understand the questions that were most important to me. So about what life was about and what happens when you die, what is time, Uh, just understanding the heart and the mind and life and death and all this kind of thing. So I remember at different points, uh, certain moments in which something struck me, even before I came to this particular path. So one of them, I remember I took a a comparative religion uh, class, and one of the books that we studied was um, The Way of a Pilgrim, which some of you have probably read. It's an Eastern Orthodox uh, story about a pilgrim, a Russian book in the 19th century. And it's about a spiritual aspirant who had read something in the Bible, in the uh, book of Thessalonians, saying uh, the instruction was pray without ceasing. And he set out to understand what that actually meant. And then he made his way around as a pilgrim and uh, basically was given the instruction of uh, something called the Jesus Prayer that he was supposed to say. And here were his instructions he was given by his spiritual director. So sit down in silence, lower your head, shut your eyes, breathe out gently, imagine yourself looking into your own heart. Sounds familiar so far, right? And then he was given a specific phrase that's related to his own beliefs. So he's a Christian, Eastern Orthodox Christian. So as you breathe out, say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. 
say it moving your lips gently or simply in your mind, try to put all other thoughts aside. Be calm, be patient, be vigilant, and repeat this process very frequently. So his first instruction in the beginning was to do this 6,000 times a day. And then slowly his spiritual director increased his uh, dosage to 12,000 times a day uh, until he was actually praying without ceasing. So this phrase that uh, for him, because of his belief, uh, it connected for him in the heart. And it's some version of like compassion prayer, uh, loving kindness prayer, metta prayer in that way. And I remember this striking me, not necessarily because I wanted to do that exact prayer, but just this idea that you could train your mind and heart like that was totally revolutionary to me. So my experience of the mind before that was just different thoughts come and go, and then sometimes you're in some place and they make you say something, like the Pledge of Allegiance, and you know you do it, and then you go about your business. And But this was so interesting to me, like so compelling, this idea of intentional cultivation of the mind, you know, that that was actually possible uh, and that this person would actually do that. So basically this is some form of a concentration practice this guy was doing. So collecting the energy of the heart and mind and then applying it, in this case, to this one phrase. So later on, after I found the practice of uh, the Dharma practice, I started doing retreats. And I started um, when I was in my late teens. And then um, by the time I was uh, finished college and I was 21, I went on first three-month retreat. Uh, and I was still in a period of trying to figure out, like, well, what am I supposed to do with my life? And what am I going to do when I grow up? And things like that. And one of the stories that particularly struck me on that retreat was hearing the story about uh, Dipama, who uh, many of you have heard of also. So Dipama is actually a contemporary. She died uh, in this last century uh, and was known to many of uh, our teachers, although I did not know her myself. So she was a Bangladeshi woman who was actually a great spiritual master. She had a a difficult life. Uh, She was uh, married when she was uh, 12, which was sort of the custom at that time when she reached puberty, arranged marriage. Uh, Her husband was actually... uh, pretty decent guy, but moved away uh, quickly, so she was left with her husband's family. She went to meet him in Burma and then uh, when she was 14, and uh, one of the things that she was supposed to do to be successful as a wife was to produce a child, uh, especially a son, and she wasn't able to do that. So she had one child, and then that child died, and then another child also died. Then she had a daughter, Uh, Then at some point her husband also died. Uh, So she went through all this great suffering, like a lot of difficulty in her life. And uh, she had been interested in meditation in some way. Uh, So she went to the retreat center and made actually very uh, diligent progress uh, through the practice. So when people went to see her after she has uh, done all this practice, the main thing that people describe as being most noticeable about her Uh, was this field of love in which she existed. Basically this field of love that emanated from her. So here's a quote from someone who came to visit her. The quality of power that Deepama had was love. When I met her, it felt as if I was in a vast ocean, still, timeless, 
penetrating, as if she could see me clearly and nothing was excluded or judged. Every part of me felt embraced and accepted. Nothing I had experienced in my life had touched me like that before. So there are many stories about the power of her realization emanating as love and how that affected her neighbors, how that affected people who came to meet her, uh, how it even made people quarrel less in her building, apparently, her apartment building. Uh, and this was also very inspiring to me. I thought like, oh, when you try to figure out like, what am I going to be or do, whatever it is that you be or do, if you could actually be this kind of a person, that would be a great gift to the world. So you could be working in a gas station or working in an office or uh, selling vegetables or being a teacher. And regardless of that, if you had this quality of being able to emanate love, what a gift that would be. You know, that would be like a good occupation, I thought. So here we're actually cultivating that. And the secret is that all of us have the ability to become these emanations of love. So we are actually boundless fountains of metta, waiting to bubble forth. Every single one of us has that capacity. So I'll spend a little time talking about what is this metta, first of all, too. And I'll say that even when I first heard this term loving-kindness, I did not really resonate with that that much. I didn't know that word. It seemed a bit like uh, Victorian, or I didn't understand that as well. Uh, so I'll throw out a few other different definitions for this quality of heart that we're cultivating. One is just a sense of goodwill. So a general sense of goodwill towards other beings other people, animals, people you know, people you don't know. Another word is uh, benevolence. And this benevolence can go from kind of a low-grade positive vibe uh, to uh, this kind of thundering field of love that's described by people who meet Deepama. Friendship or friendliness. So developing a sense of friendliness towards oneself and others. You know, cultivating friendship, the quality of being a good friend for oneself and for all that you meet. There's an important uh, tag-on to these, even if it's defined as love for metta, which is that it's unconditional love or one of my favorite translations is the force of unstoppable friendliness. So what that means is, actually, regardless of what you deliver to me, this sense of goodwill, this sense of friendliness will continue to emanate in your direction. It will continue to be there. So this is a strength. This is actually a power. It's not like, well, as long as you do the following things, as long as you don't do the following things, I will send metta your direction. But as soon as you break that contract, then it's all back. Right? So there's, a, there's an unselfishness, but also a confidence that comes from knowing that quality, from being able to emanate that quality of friendship. 
So among the benefits of this is for others, for example, the sense of uh, safety in your presence. And this is one of my favorite benefits of metta. It's considered the greatest gift that you can give to others is a sense of safety in your presence. So if you have this sense of kindness, of friendliness towards others, then they don't feel like, oh, maybe they're going to yell at me. Maybe they're going to lie to me. Maybe they're going to cheat me. Maybe I'm going to be physically harmed by them. You give actually the gift of uh, relaxing. Your own heart is relaxed, and then others can actually relax around you too. So you can see this around here with the animals. So at, at Spirit Rock, you know, been here 25 years, something like that, and uh, as a retreat center, basically like no one is uh, harming the animals here. So we're following the precepts the best we can. So like the turkeys, the deer, like they're all quite relaxed here in a different way than most other places. Like they're kind of doing their thing and they'll see you, but then they'll go back to doing their thing. And it's really different, isn't it? To have that relationship with animals. Like it's a very beautiful thing, I feel. So obviously the gift, gift is to them, so they don't have to be afraid of being killed or hunted. But also the gift is actually back to us. So it's more relaxing also for us. You can feel more peaceful when you have a peaceful relationship with other beings around. And for ourselves also, what we're cultivating as we cultivate the practice of metta is just the connection to our own heart. So being able to live from the heart. So that includes knowing when there is this sense presence of this friendliness, but also being connected to the heart to know when it's absent too. And as Spring described in the instructions that she gave this afternoon, you're going to find in this process of purification that a lot of the time, or some of the time at least, some of what seems to be present is actually not metta. And that's okay. So being able to discern that, being able to know that, being able to read that, is actually also very important. Allowing those different states to arise and knowing what they are is also part of our practice. So this is part of the purification process. And that's actually what uh, happens in this path. That's what made Deepama that kind of person. The purification that came from the spiritual practice. So from both the insights, the understanding about the truth of the way things are, about the Dharma, And also through this specific cultivation of these states of mind and heart. So for those of you who are familiar more with Eightfold Path and for uh, Vipassana practice, I'll connect a few different elements sort of conceptually around this. Now, any of these talks or any of the practices that we'll give, we'll give you some different angles. And some of them might work for you well, and some of them might not. So basically take what's helpful and leave the rest behind. 
you don't need to get too uh, struggly with it. So one aspect that we're practicing here is the cultivation of uh, wise or right intention. So cultivating intentions of the heart that are opposite to cruelty, opposite to hatred, opposite to greed. So in this practice, we're actually intentionally planting the seeds of friendliness, of metta. So in this way, this is also an aspect of right effort, wise effort in the Eightfold Path. So wise effort is to know when there's something unwholesome there, to try to let it go, to try to avoid the conditions for the arising of unwholesome. And then on the other side, to arouse wholesome states, such as metta, and to cultivate the conditions for that. When they arise, to continue them along, to feed them, to water them. And all of this is based also on an understanding of cause and effect. So cause and effect in this case about understanding the mind and the heart. So understanding what it is that actually leads towards happiness, towards peace. So conventional worldview is, of course, that uh, in order to become happy, we need to get stuff that we want. And we need to have people behave the way that we want. We need to have our body function the way that we want it to. We need to have people say things that we want to us. We have to make this much money, have this kind of weather. And basically the road to happiness in a conventional recipe is organize everything to my liking, basically garner pleasant experiences, script them out and try to hold that that like that for the rest of my life. So unfortunately, in the world in which things are not in our control, that's not really going to work. So here also then, with cultivating metta, we have to actually kind of get to cut to the chase with all of this. Like, what is it that we want from all of these external things? Basically, we want to get them so that we can be happy. What is it that we want from other people? We want them to treat us well. We want them to show us friendship and respect and love and kindness. So a cultivating practice of metta is actually cutting out the middleman in that way. It's like, oh, what if I could cultivate that myself? (laughs) What if then not only do I not have to seek that out from other people, I actually can be this boundless source for myself and others. So it's actually a very, very radical and incredible thing to start to see this, the possibility of this. So I started practicing uh, metta, as many of you did on Vipassana retreats, and it would be kind of like one period a day. And then at the end of the retreat, we'd do 
like a circle thing, metta. And then after a while I developed this interest in really going deeper with the practice. Like I could see that there was this potential and kind of put together the pieces of these different aspects I had learned. So like you all are doing here, I started practicing metta intensively on retreats and then also uh, off retreats. So in my daily life, I'd practice also. So I practiced when I was riding the bus to work. I would practice when I was standing in line at the grocery store. I would practice at home, lying in bed. So basically, like this uh, pilgrim, I started to try to cultivate that whenever I could, whenever I didn't specifically have to think about something else, like for work, I try to call this up and cultivate this and basically train my mind and heart in this way. And other stories that I had told are from different times in the past, but the human mind and heart is basically the same. So I was amazed to see that the results were also similar. So it's actually possible to cultivate this. It's possible to train your mind and heart to basically incline yourself towards having this arise more and more, spontaneously even, so you're not always having to seem to effort towards that. And the effects have been very transformative. Among the benefits of this too is actually having a collected mind. So having more of a collected mind and heart. So a common word for this is about concentration. But that may be the last time I'll use that particular word. So samadhi. It's only because usually when people think concentration, they think like, oh, I have to bear down. Like, now I must develop metta. (laughs) Kind of like strangling it or uh, pushing down on it or... uh, must trap the mind in love or something like that. (laughs) So of course that sense of like trapping or forcing or uh, struggling is actually opposite to metta, to this sense of friendliness. The sense that uh, I would like to suggest for samadhi is actually just a collectedness of mind. So unification of the heart and mind. A non-distraction, you could say. And the way towards that is actually not necessarily by forcing like that, but by actually letting go. So letting go of the distractions. Letting go of the things that lead away from that collectedness of mind. So samadhi concentration is actually an act of renunciation. So renouncing the thoughts of distraction, the other things that might lead us in different directions. The power of the mind is actually amazing. We all have so much at our possible, uh, for our possible harnessing. And most people don't know this at all. Like we live in this world in which we can see the visual things and invest in that, but 
it's like there's this whole other game board in which life reality is playing out. Uh, And most people are not even uh, aware that there is this other dimension. So I've started uh, swimming a lot lately, the last couple of years, and uh, it's always good to be learning something new as a teacher because you can understand then like the struggles people have with trying to learn something new. So when I began as a swimmer, um, my, my mom actually took my brother and I to the YMCA when we were little kids to try to teach us to swim. And she didn't know how to swim herself, but in the kind of act of love that parents sometimes do. Uh, she took us to the Y. And they gave us a test in the beginning. Uh, it was like, here's the swimming pool, and they want to see how well you swim already. So, you know, basically go from this end to this end of the shallow end of the pool, like this ladder to that ladder. So my brother's a bit older than me, so I think he went first. And, um, and basically we just walked across the pool like this, you know, <laughs> in like slow motion, you know. And, uh, and we got to the end, and we were so excited about it. We were like, Wow, that was so cool. It was like walking on the moon. Wasn't it amazing? Yeah. We were thrilled by our experience. And I'm sure the swimming instructor was like, okay, beginner class. <laughs> not only do they not know how to swim, they don't even know what swimming is. Yeah. <laughs> They've never even heard of it. It's like, <laughs> I haven't the slightest idea. Like <laughs> but of course, you know, we started going to class and, you know, learning how to swim. And, uh, you know, now I can do sort of basic basic strokes and enjoy swimming and I sort of picked it up again after several decades of not doing it that much uh, more recently so when I go to the pool I see uh, sometimes like other little kids there who are uh, getting ready for their swim lesson and it's interesting to watch the kids you know as opposed to the adults so a lot of little kids have a lot of energy so you know they come to their swim lesson they're like in a little line and stuff and uh, they usually can't stand still even out of the water. You know, they're like jostling each other and pulling their swimsuits and like hopping on one foot. And um, Adults usually don't have that much energy to do that. Right? <laughs> and then even when they get in the water, you know, the, the swimming instructor trying to describe to them what they're supposed to do. Uh, and they're still doing all these little antics, like they're spinning around and, you know, uh, splashing each other and like diving down and bouncing up. And like occasionally engaging with what's being said and then, you know, sort of doing what is being described, right? Uh, And most of the adults, like, come to the pool and then they're swimming, you know, just doing their strokes, their laps, you know. The kids do seem to be having more fun, but, uh, (laughs) you know, it's very different the way, like, the the discipline of body or the the channeling of energy that the adults have at the pool versus the little kids. And it's not bad, you know, like it's, it's actually sweet to see them and how energetic they are. Uh, but you can see, like, they, they develop too. Like, they have to develop in their discipline. So I had a, a, a niece who I remember I was, uh, took in the pool once when she was a little kid, and uh, she's like probably four or five, and she told me she could swim, and I was worried about this. Um, but she said, no, no, I can swim, let me swim. So she basically sort of flailed her way across the pool, you know, and... She didn't have any technique, but through sheer energy and uh, enthusiasm, like stayed afloat and you know got to the other side. Right? Uh, and now she's like five years older, and she's actually a better swimmer than me. And, and you know, 
It's great. But I, I tell you all these stories because this is basically the untrained mind. <laughs> right. So what I'm describing in physical form, you could probably see happening in your own mind. So like the antics that it's going through, you know, as you try to like, teach it the strokes of metta. Right? You know, it's like bouncing around and hopping on one foot and like, <laughs> like splashing things. And, you know. uh, so it's just good to be really patient because you're, you know, you're just beginning uh, for many people you know, in this training of the mind. And it's a discipline and it also can be a joy. Uh, and it's a beautiful thing. But just to be very patient and very kind when you see the mind in these kind of antics. So you definitely do not need to hate your mind for this, your heart. You know, uh, Notice when you're judging yourself or what seems like some lack of progress, discipline, endurance, connection, anything like that. Right? Uh, but really the way to learn is just to continue with... Uh, this kind of patient persistence, you know, this kind of patient persistence that was described also uh, in this way of a pilgrim. So be calm, be patient, and repeat the process very frequently. So in this way, actually, also, this practice is really like a devotional practice. So like active devotion uh, to yourself, to your own heart, and actually really to all beings in some way. Now we started today with ourself and also with uh, someone called a benefactor. And benefactor you could consider uh, sometimes even as someone who you feel gratitude towards who you feel like regarded you with the eyes of love in that way. So if you can think of anyone in your life from your past, who it seemed like connected with you in that way that could see your own goodness, allowed you to see your own goodness. You know, someone who seemed to have faith in you, trust in you. And as Spring said, you know, this could be a teacher, it could be uh, a grandparent. Sometimes the ones who have that sense of adoration most is like your dog, that's also okay. Or actually a small child sometimes is one who calls that sense up. So someone for whom it's just really easy for us to have that sense of love towards. So cultivate a sense of well-wishing. A sense of goodwill. So someone for whom, sort of in the neutral state, if you might see this person naturally in your heart, there might be arising a sense of like, oh, like a little smile in your heart. A little tail wagging, if you will. So the kind of uh, tail wagging that would make you feel like, oh yeah, like, oh, I hope they're doing well when you think of them. I hope they had a good day today. I hope they're healthy. And when we go through the different categories of people, you know, we start with this one who it seems like it's easier for us to work with. 
And we always want to include ourselves, who sometimes is in that category of easy to work with and to wish well for, and sometimes maybe not. So there too, we get a chance to practice this act of devotion. So what we're doing here is connecting with our own deepest wishes for our own happiness. So your own deepest wishes for your well-being, for health, for strength, for courage, for freedom from suffering, for safety. And when we connect with ourselves, we can see, like, oftentimes that sense of vulnerability that's there, because we know actually that those things are not all in our control. So what is there then to do but to cultivate this wish for yourself? Connect with the heart that can have this sense of friendship, goodwill towards yourself. And then also towards others. So this weekend as I came here also, uh, I reflected on variety of different friends that I have who are in different circumstances. Whose lives I've been plugged in with and then now coming on retreat, even as a teacher, of uh, not being as actively for the next week uh, with them. And probably if you reflect on your friends or loved ones also, you could sense like, oh yeah, good things are happening for some people and then difficult things are happening for some people. So one friend of mine had good news, she found she was pregnant, but then also uh, difficult news that uh, wasn't sure if it was going to be a viable pregnancy or how her own health was going to be. Uh, So it has to have some tests and things like that. So what can I do as a friend? At least cultivate that wish for her, that well-wishing, connect in my heart. With my really sincere wish that all is well for her, for her health. Another couple of friends were going to meet uh, they're getting married in next month, uh, and they're going to meet the two families coming together for the first time. So they're very nervous about that, uh, especially because uh, one of them, uh, parents disapproves of their uh, relationship because they're both women, and uh, is not supportive. So uh, I felt for them also, going down for this, this summit meeting. They were both very anxious about this, you know, How would this go? So what can I do as a friend, you know? Like I'm not actually there, but I can cultivate this sense of well-wishing towards them. I can send them metta. I can hold them in my heart in that way and let them know. Another friend of mine just got um, 
basically left from it. He was going to take a trip with someone who he thought was his boyfriend. And then the boyfriend suddenly bailed out. And it seems like maybe he's not his boyfriend anymore. So also it's very painful for him. But, uh, you know, so then what can I do in that case too? It's like, oh, connect with love, with compassion for this case. So metta is actually a a radical practice also because it calls on us to be less self-centered. And even as you're here, you know, seemingly cloistered for a week, just doing this practice that seems solitary, you're actually cultivating the heart that has the ability to connect like this in all different circumstances for all different people. And of course, in order to be able to connect with a sense of metta and friendliness to others, you need also to be able to connect with yourself. So part of this a practice of the unconditional part, the unstoppable friendliness part, is seeing when we come up against some barrier to metta. As we engage in basically like an increased intimacy with knowing ourselves, or with knowing another. And then seeing like, oh, okay, where is it that I see that unspoken contract about what this person can't do or be for me to love them? So when do I come up against that contract that I have with myself? It's like, oh, I'll love you only if you weigh this much. Or only if you don't say these things. <coughs> only if you succeed in this way. Only if you're flawless. Right. So here we have a chance to practice a resiliency of love. It's a powerfulness that can develop through this. It's a strength and also it's a protection. So the protection comes both for your own mind as you cultivate this sense of kindness, benevolence. You create a heart and mind that is not actually harmed by greed, hatred, jealousy, rage. And then that protection, that emanation, also can affect others. So it's a practice of devotion and also actually a practice of building our world. We're building the world from the inside out. So we think we need to change the externals. But actually the thing that helps you to live in a field of love is right here. Is under your training possibility.
So we all stand on the shoulders of so many people who have loved us in our lives. Even just to be here today as adults. I can see this now as more of my friends are raising children and I'm part of raising children. It takes so much effort to raise a child. It's like somebody fed you. No matter how imperfectly. Somehow you were protected from the elements enough. You were taught to walk, taught to speak, taught to feed yourself, take care of yourself. And then on a broader scale, we're supported by so many people, even while we're here. all of the cooks, the managers, those people even back in time who created this center, the animals, nature itself. Tired of speech in which this was called, the connection that we have is actually our connection to a conspiracy of love. So we're all part of this conspiracy of love. A conspiracy of love that is so radical that there were those who supported us in this. People who dared to love so hard that they loved generations yet unborn. That's why we're here. So here we have a great opportunity this week for joining this conspiracy, cultivating our own hearts and minds. And it actually bears appreciating for a moment too the conditions of our lives that allow us to be here too. So perhaps you can close your eyes for a moment. I can bring to mind some of those who are supporting you in some way in order to be here. So that could be people at home who are taking care of things while you're away. People at work looking after things. It could be family members. bring to mind past teachers that you've had who might have introduced you to the practice 
ever told you about this retreat. go back even further and appreciate anyone who's taught you about friendship anyone who has taught you about love people you know people you don't know, but who have inspired you through their books. And then connect with your own heart, your own inherent goodness and sincerity in coming here for practice. can appreciate your own good qualities. Kindness, courage, the renunciation it's taken to come on retreat, to do the work that you're doing. and your own deepest wishes for your happiness and well-being. It seems like there are a lot of individuals here, but we're all plugged into the same current. We always have been. (coughs) So we can continue our training and take our place here in the conspiracy of love. Thank you for your attention to the Dhamma. So please continue your practice and be very patient and kind with yourself as we embark on our journey. But also don't let yourself splash around too much before you uh, reconnect again. So every opportunity that you come back and that you can have that intention to come back, you're planting a seed that's very important. You're cultivating your heart and mind. So every time you walk, every time you sit, each time that you take those intentions. So none of that is wasted. So we'll have some time now for walking, continuing your practice.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.